0: Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, we're going to work through this week's uh, readings, five chapters, Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 through chapter 13. So we're going to peruse through these here. So a little background, do you remember what missionary trip was Paul on when he planted the church at Corinth? Do you remember? First, second, or third? You got a 33% chance of hitting it right if you just guess. right? Second trip. So you remember, he was on his second trip, uh, went out, did some evangelism, planting churches, training, discipling believers, raising them up, and then uh, run out of Athens, uh, goes to, uh, uh, from Athens over to Berea, runs out of Thessalica, goes on to Athens over to Berea, they run him out of Berea, goes to Athens, eventually gets over to Corinth, and it's there that he plants church you'll find the history of the Corinthian church in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, so verse 1 says he arrives in Corinth. Later down in verse 8, it says, and many believed while there. So Paul is with that team. Paul, Silas, um, Timothy, and partner up with Aquila and Priscilla. And the five of them begin to engage the city with the gospel. So they're going out looking for people of peace. In the synagogues, in the marketplace, sharing the gospel, there's a response. And it says in verse 8, many believed, came to faith in Christ. And so they stay there. The 18th chapter says they stay there 18 months. And they just pour themselves into these new believers. So you think about yourself, if you're in a city, there's no other churches, no other gospel witness in the entire city. No radios, no television broadcasts, no Bibles, no tracts, nothing. So you got to plan a church. So then you got to pull all these new believers in there. And they didn't just have instant church, there had to be some discipling and training on the scriptures, how to worship God, who God is, how He's revealed Himself in, in, the, in the Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, the understanding of the gospel. Um, um, the whole world, the Holy Spirit, then how church is supposed to work. So all of that had to uh, all take place for them to understand, what do we do? So we're Christians, that's who we are now. What are we supposed to do? The Great Commission, all of those things. So he stays there 18 months. Then leaves, eventually on his third trip, when he's going back to revisit previous churches to strengthen them, to check on their faith. He's always concerned about the faith of Christians. How's their faith? So, you, you know, when, when you're going through some tough times, trials, difficulties, how's your faith? Are you trusting in the Lord? Praying in faith, staying strong in faith? Um, and so he's, he's concerned about that. When he arrives in Ephesus, then he receives a letter. Someone from the church at Corinth knows that Paul's in Ephesus. They send a letter over. And in that letter that they first write to Paul, they say, we're having some problems. We're, we're, and, uh, and he references their letter several times in 1 Corinthians. He says, not concerning the things you wrote to me. So he said, they're having some problems. So he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, in response to their letter, describing all the issues and problems they were having in the church. So... Um, if you want to know a little bit about the, how the church got started, you read the book of Acts. If you want to know how churches are to operate and function, you read the epistles. So you don't, you don't read the book of Acts to know how churches are to conduct themselves. You just get the history, how it got started in Acts. But all of these epistles, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians... All these, and then the pastoral epistles to these guys. It's all instructive so churches know how to operate, how to conduct themselves as, as the body of Christ. So that's what he's doing is providing some instruction here. So that's a little bit of the background. The major problem, you know, I would say, with the whole Corinthian church, every problem, if you go to chapter 3, the first four verses, this is really char- characterizes their main problem. Read with me and then we'll pick up in our reading in chapter 9. Main problem, 1 Corinthians 3, first four verses. Paul says, and I, brethren, writing to the church, brothers, sisters in Christ, I could not address you, speak to you as spiritual people, men, men and women of the Spirit, spiritual people, but instead as to carnal, sinful, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until you now you are still not able to receive it. And even now, uh, you, you, you know, babes never matured. So um, it's okay when you when you bring home a baby and you give it a milk bottle, and a baby nurses either on its the, uh, the, some off a mother's breast. Or off these uh, baby bottles. That's that's normal for a baby to nurse. How would you, you know, if I if I walked in here today and I had a little, instead of having a water bottle, what would you all think? Pastor Charlie came in there and he had a Playtex disposable nursing bottle and he was sucking on the bottle, just just sucking on the bottle. You'd think, yeah, there's something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Well reverted back <laughs> so uh, that's, that's kind of the picture These they're, they're, they're still sucking on bottles and you want to know why there's problems in other areas of their lives because they're still sucking on bottles nursing on bottles and acting he says acting like carnal people you, they're acting the same way They acted before they came to Christ. He says, by now, I mean some years had passed, by now, um, you ought to be mature, ought to be stronger. Um, Pass these elementary doctrines. Um, uh, James 3 talks about not many of you teach it, but by, by now, instead of you being taught, Paul says, you ought to be teaching. Uh, do you think there should be a shortage of teachers in the church why don't more people teach why can't we start more classes you know starting always starting new classes new cells new cells new cells grow new class why can't we a lot of times we can't start classes people don't want people don't want to teach Not willing to teach. They're not willing to put in the time to study the preparation, or they haven't matured, and after many years, they still don't know the Bible. They know about Colombo. They know about Matlock. They know about Wheel of Fortune. They know about their favorite television shows. They know about CNN and Fox and what's going on politically. They spend a lot of time, hours, listening, watching all of that, but they don't know the Bible. Paul said, by now, you ought to be teaching instead of being taught, being, being taught. Um, uh, well, I can, I, can, I can talk a long time about that. We'll move on about uh, older Christians still nursing them out. So let's pick up chapter 9. So what is chapter 9? This week, as we started reading, what is chapter 9 about? Well, it's about liberty, Christian liberty. Have you heard that subject? Christian liberty, Christian freedom, free, our freedom in Christ, our liberty in Christ. So a little background to chapter 9 was, you remember, remember in chapter 8, Paul stressed this whole subject of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. But he says in chapter 8, it does have limits. So while all things may be permissible for me, not all things are beneficial. Um, there's certain things that you and I, a uh, Christian, are just forbidden from. And then there's a lot of things that you might be free to do, but you'd be better not to do. Um, and so he, he he lays that out. Uh, much of what you and I do or choose not to do as a Christian is because out of concern for my brother. What what is gonna help, um, how is this decision that I'm gonna make this how is this for the benefit of my brother or sister in Christ? What if there's a weaker brother or sister in Christ? How might me choosing to do this affect their conscience? Can you think of any examples of that? What well, if you out with a friend and they're drinking and you take a drink? Well hey, yeah say, so, well, what's the me and Yeah, Rudon gave an example of alcohol. Well, am, I, am I free as a Christian to take a drink? Yeah. Well, you, can't, you can't go through the Bible and make a strong case for abstinence. The Bible condemns strong drink. It condemns drunkenness. I've always told everybody I know, raise their kids, I've never seen anything good come from alcohol. But even Paul writes to Timothy, he was more from a disciple, he said, they, uh, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, and, and they drink wine. Uh, so, you know, if, if you were out and you drank a glass of wine, is that going to hurt your relationship with Christ? I don't think it would affect it at all. But what might, the, the example, I but what might that do to somebody else who saw you drinking? Well, I saw. It your, yeah, your witness, your testimony. Might affect, cause affect a, a younger a younger or a brother younger sister weaker conscience and something, so that's an example. Um, so we, we you know i you and I are to be willing to relinquish rights to lose some of my rights for the benefit of other people. So that's what really what Paul is uh, trying to stress um, in in chapter nine. By the way, go, go back over to chapter 8, verse 9. There, there's a strong principle there. Chapter 8, look back at verse 9. He says, beware. This is chapter 8, verse 9. Beware lest somehow this freedom or this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. So we we'll to be careful what I say. What I do, decisions, choices that I make, how is this going to affect my witness? And we saw this last week. Not only do you and I have a, a testimony, a personal witness, a name, a reputation, to be blameless, above reproach, beyond repute, right? For To be well thought of. I care about my... You ever, you ever anybody say, as a Christian, say, I don't care what anybody thinks. That's none of their business. That's, that couldn't be further from the truth. I care about my reputation, my name, right? A good name. The Proverbs says it's far above silver and gold, your name, your reputation, what people think of you. And so just as you and I care about our individual name and reputation, churches also uh, develop a reputation. Church testimonies in the community. What What do people in this community think about Hillcrest Baptist Church? What is our reputation? What are we known for? Are we loving, caring church? Are we uh, inclusive, welcoming? Are we a worship church? Uh, is the Word of God uh, strong at that church? Are we known for evangelism and missions? Do we have an impact in the community? What What are we known for? What's our reputation? And so that's that's important. You know, same just as it is individually. So that's a little bit in First Corinthians nine. Uh, uh, First Corinthians nine also Paul illustrates this principle of freedom and liberty from his own from his own life, and he says in first really it goes on the the main example used in First Corinthians nine is Paul said that he never was paid. He, he never took any pay. He never the Corinthians never paid him, and he says in chapter nine he said I had the right to be paid to be compensated, but he never took any pay so. Um, but he goes on and justifies it why it's okay so I've preached on this before titled the sermon um, um, paying your pastor paying your pastors paying them this is a good basis for a biblical basis for paying them and there's three sections the first 14 verses Paul said he had the right to be financially supported by those he ministered to the, those he served he was an apostle he says it was customary for them to be paid. The, the scriptures commended it. Um, Jesus commended it. Jesus talked about the importance of pay. Paul wrote to Timothy: the the ox, uh, the, the laborer is worthy of their hire. Uh, don't don't be the 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 ox that treads out the grain is worthy of honor. So all of that is uh, is biblically based, but in. But in the middle of that chapter, he said he, he gave up that right. He relinquished the right. And the reason he didn't want to take any pay was because he didn't, he didn't want to burden the church. Um, so um, when several years ago, we helped start a Hispanic church where, we were, where I was pastoring, and a lot of Hispanic people who had moved into Louisville um, many of them didn't have jobs. They were just trying to get established. Um, much, uh, much of their congregation were um, guys who were doing some labor jobs and they had families. And so the church, that new church plant didn't have hardly have any money at all. Well, so that new, that their pastor, uh, he, he was paid very, very little. Uh, unfortunately the church didn't have it to pay him. Um, and so we helped supplement that. So you think about this church at Corinth got started, and so Paul didn't want to be a burden to anyone, so he just said, hey, I'll, I'll work bivocationally. So you remember what him and Priscilla and Aquila did, what their trade was? They were tent makers, and so they, helped made, they supported themselves. The previous church that I pastored for almost 30 years, when I first got there, Mindy and I, we had four kids. There were six of us, and uh, they couldn't afford to pay me full time. I had pastored two previous full-time churches before I went to that church, but when God called me to go to that church, which I didn't really want to go to, <laughs> stayed there 30 years, but I, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't pay me full-time. And so I had uh, um, hustled and work other side jobs and sometimes two and three things, just doing things all the time, trying to help provide for my family. Mindy, Mindy and I, she chose to stay home with the kids and I wanted her to be home. If if we could do that, and so, but as the church grew, and and God began to bless it, then I was able to then didn't have to balance other side jobs and was able to focus on the church. So you see that in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, look at look at chapter 9, just a couple of verses starting in chapter 9. Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19. He says, in this is kind of a summary, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? That I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, who that, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, which would be Gentiles, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, and I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, what does he say he became? As weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might be by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So what is he saying? He's saying, Paul's saying, I want to learn to connect with people. I want to learn to relate to people for the purpose of advancing the gospel. So when I'm around Jews and they have certain customs and certain things to do, I'm going to adapt to their customs and their culture and their way of doing things to connect with them so that I might share the gospel with them when I'm with Christ. And so you see when missionaries go into other parts of the world, they have to learn the customs and the traditions and the cultures and the language and in order to connect with them, to build a relationship with them. So that's what Paul's saying. So if you've got a next-door neighbor who lives to you and this guy's a mechanic, works on cars, one of the ways to connect with him might be what? Yeah, go watch, see what he does, or say, hey, can I ask you a question? Could you come over? I'm having a little issue with my car. What, what do you think's wrong? Just, just learning to connect. Somebody that likes to garden. Hey, tell me about your garden. Uh, somebody who is you know, just learning to connect with our neighbors. By the way, do you know your neighbors? Are you connected with your neighbors? You no, know, sometimes people don't even know their neighbors. You know, so learning to connect with people that you might win them. Read read the rest of this with me. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one deserves the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. For if they do it to obtain a perishable crown... For we had an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run this thus, not with uncertainty. So you see, he's running, he's living. Thus, I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, my, I myself should become disqualified. So I'm running the race. I'm running the race. I don't want to be disqualified. I want to be faithful. I want to do all that I can to connect with other people to advance the gospel. That may even be putting my own rights, my own preferences, dying to self, putting all that aside so that I put the interest in what's best for other people ahead of my own. So that's kind of a summary of chapter 9. Chapter 10, still on the subject of liberty, um, and what seems to be happening here is some of the Corinthians found out that they had liberty in Christ, and so they started abusing it. Hey, if i boy, if I'm free from all these cultural restraints and all these traditions, then I'm just gonna then go. I'm, I'm just gonna do what I want to do. And so there were some abuses, and so Paul is going to address this here in chapter chapter ten. Uh, and uh, gets into this um, the first 13 verses uh, he refers back to some Old Testament saints um, the Old Testament stories Paul says in, to the Romans that all of this previous scripture the Old Testament was written for our instruction for our benefit so if you look at chapter 10 he refers back to the saints, uh, uh, the people of God. Um, And as a point, look at verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And so you and I can go back and study the Old Testament character stories and learn from those examples. Right? The men this week on Thursday morning... At 6 a.m. going forward, we're going to start a men's Bible study, and our first study is from the life of Samson. Judges chapter 13 through 16. Well, you know what? Men can learn a lot from studying the life of Samson. Not that he did things right, but he did things really bad, really poorly. You can learn from that. You You think there's value in learning from other people's mistakes? Certainly. And so... Uh, that's what he says here in verse 6 that we can learn from those examples um, not to lust ever evil things. By the way, look at verse 7. Let me go through these. It tells us some things to stay away from. Verse 7. Do not become idolaters. Verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality. Verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ. Verse 10. Nor complain. Uh-oh. <laughs> How many of you ever complain? He's throwing that in the same category as tempting Christ, sexual immorality, and idolatry. Woo! (laughs) Uh, it's, It's a sin. You know, complaining. Any of you guilty of that? Yeah, I think we all would be complaining, complaining, always Complaining. About the weather, about this, about that, about that person, complaining about my church, complaining the music's too loud, or complaining about this, or just anything, just complaining about my, my doctor, about my car, about my just just you know just complaining, negative, all that, right? Uh, verse eleven. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And it was all written for our admonition. So we can learn from studying the stories of faith. Then there's some great verses here. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Is that a pretty good warning? And Then he says, no temptation has overtaken you except as such as is common to man, but God is faithful. God is faithful. So in the midst of temptation and tests, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So tests. Any of you gone through some tests in life? Temptations. um, They're a part of life. We're all going to be tested. We're all going to be tried. Uh, James says, count it all joy when you go through the test. How many of you are quick to do that? Oh, my goodness. You know, you get hit with a, a big financial bill, you know, and car repair. Oh. I was talking to a guy this week. He was backing up his trailer, and uh, something happened to it, and the trailer twisted, and it tore up the whole rear quarter panel of his pickup truck. $2,800, you know, how are you going to respond to that? You're going to just get all mad and angry and start yelling and swearing and going crazy and allow it to put you in a, a bad mood for the next two weeks or every time you go look out of the truck and just say, hey, it's part of life. Didn't, hated that it happened, but uh, God's faithful. It'll either get fixed or rust out that way, one of the, one of the two things, really, at the end of the picture. Tests, tests. I love Matthew 4, where Jesus, right after he's baptized, he launches in, right before he launches into his public ministry, the Bible says that God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You remember reading that? Now I thought, wow, God led his son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Tested, tempted. Um, God will always test us allow us to go through tests to build our faith the enemy will always use those situations for temptation to call, to weaken our faith and the difference whether it comes out for our good and for God's glory or whether the enemy gets glory from it and honor from it is by our response and I found And you have too in your life that a lot of the tests and things that we go through in life we don't really have much control over. Some we do. Some of the things, hardships that we go through in life are because we make bad decisions and put ourselves in bad circumstances. But a lot of the things we go through in life just going to happen. They just happen. Um, You know, Jesus said it's going to rain on the just and the unjust. Difficult things are going to happen. Uh, started reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes says there's going to be a lot of trouble in life, a lot of tests, a lot of trials. Uh, what we have control over is our response. Are we going to respond in faith? And so that's, that's what's uh, being uh, really Paul is emphasizing here. It he tells us to flee from idolatry, flee from all of these evil things. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me move a little quicker here. Uh, strange verse. Someone look, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. What does it say? Paul says, imitate me as what? Because I imitate Christ. And why is that a strange verse? Because years ago, I may have already shared this with you. When I first read that first verse first, I thought that's, that's not good. I don't want anybody to imitate me. I just want them to imitate Christ. But Paul says, imitate me as as I imitate Christ. Why didn't Paul say, uh, look past me, keep your eyes on Jesus, and just imitate Christ? Or follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example as I follow Christ's example. Well, what I've come to realize is that in the church, and he's writing to the church, uh, one of the ways that people learn to follow Christ is from uh, models other examples of godly men and women in the church, role models, examples. Doesn't Paul say that to Timothy in the pastoral epistles? Hey, Timothy, don't let anyone despise or look down upon your youth, but set the believers an example. Be an example. Be exemplary in the way that you live for Christ in your word, your conduct, your actions, all of those things. Set a good example. And I I have found that to be true, that the church needs men and women who serve the Lord and are models, examples on um, how to live. Um, And that's very, very important. Then he commends them in verse 2. Look at this. Paul commends them for remembering traditions. Or he says teachings, traditions, teachings, some things that he passed on to them. And then there's verse 3, there's a verse there that seems to be more and more ignored by our culture. Read verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11. Now I want you to know that the head of every man is who? Christ. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What does the word head mean? Headship. Headship. The Bible, New Testament, teaches headship. Headship is a Greek word, kephelae. That's a military term that conveys rank and order and structure. So any of you, brothers, sisters, ever, any of you serve in the military? Roy, some of you have? Back here, Jackie has? Is there, stru- is there structure in the military? Rank, order, chain of command? okay. That's how things work. There's a, there's an order. There's a structure to it. And the Bible says that there's a structure. There's an order here also for the church. Starts in the home, but it's also in the church. And it says, and so this rank is you have God the Father, Jesus the Son, the husband, and the wife. And so really, for example, knowing how the church is to function, or the the home is to function, then study how God the Father relates to Jesus the Son. How did that role work? How did that function? He says, God the Father is head of Jesus Christ the Son. Likewise, the husband is the head of the wife. So, he said, well, I don't like that. I don't... What do you mean? Husband is the head of the wife. I don't, I don't like that. What is that? Well, so how did it work before you say I don't like it? Well, so think. Go back to God the Father and Jesus the Son. There was a, God the Father was ahead of Christ. So, what do we know about the relationship? The way that Jesus functioned and related to God the Father. Were they equal? Were they were they equal? God the Father and Jesus the Son? How many of you think yes? How many of you think no? They were fully equal. Right? The Trinity, God the Father, fully equal with Jesus the Son, fully equal with the Holy Spirit. The God did, the Trinity, they were one. So, God the Father wasn't superior to Jesus the Son. They were one, Equal. Fully spiritually equal. So how did they? But Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, submitted himself. Submission is a word that means to voluntarily give up your rights, to relinquish your interests for the to put the others' interests and rights ahead of your own. Jesus, without any loss of his own dignity, without any loss of his value or worth, he submitted himself to the father's interests that's headship and submission also you never see God the father barking out orders to Jesus the son that's not what headship is well I'm the head I'm the man and so I'm going to make demands in this house you don't see God the father relating to Jesus that way do you? You ever seen a place in the Gospels where God the Father is ordering the Son around? Not at all. He loves the Son. Cares about the Son. And Jesus cares about the interests and what's best for the Father. And, and both interests, God the Father and Jesus the Son, are also on, on, uh, on us. On others. Otherness. On us. So same kind of a uh, so there, there. Remember, I talked, mentioned earlier. There was evidently some problems in the Corinthian church. People are abusing their liberty and their freedom, not really caring about the decisions and actions and the words and how it affected other people. You see this in here in chapter 11. So Paul, or Don mentioned about this, these head, these coverings, and hair, and stuff that was. Going on here in First Corinthians eleven, um, you can read it. Can be a little confusing, but it's really not. It's pretty simple. Um, culturally, in First Corinthians, in that culture, um, there, there were some cultural practices that conveyed um, um, being being uh, um, masculine and feminine, male and female. So culturally, there women. Kept their heads covered. You know any cultures that are like that today? Women wear burqas? What is the full full face thing covered, Tracy? With what the the burkas? Yeah. So Islam um, uh, women still wear those head coverings, and it's it's because of they modesty modesty. Women are to be modest. They're to keep those heads covered and pretty much every, else, every other part of their body covered too, um, except maybe their hands and feet. Uh, but that's a cultural, modest thing for women. And, and so you see the same thing here in Corinth. I don't know exactly what the head coverings were, but these Christian, I mean, these women started feeling some freedom in Christ, and so they started disregarding some of their cultural coverings and Paul's saying to them, no, no. Why? Because you're trying to connect with other people. You're still trying to be culturally sensitive to advance the gospel. For women to say, all of a sudden, um, I'm free in Christ and I don't care about this, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, it would, it would cause division in the church. And so that's kind of an example that's going on there. Culturally, uh, women... Were to wear long hair. It was part of the culture. It was part of being feminine, right? Glory of women, long hair. Well, um, that's a cultural thing. And so, for a woman, woman to take off a head covering and cut her, shave her head, or cut her, cut her hair short, that was, that was not culturally viewed well. That was and, only done for like a crime. Yeah. In the yeah, so you, yeah, and to to if you wanted to shame a woman, you would you would shave her head. That was a that was a shameful thing to be done, which well, we we knew uh, a couple in um, in Indonesia where some young Indonesian girls had come to faith in Christ and renounced Islam, and so they brought them into a public square and they shamed them. They took their clothes off and shaved their heads. These two teenage girls. To shame them. All right? So that's what's kind of going on in Corinth. So um, Paul is Paul is saying that um, that's that's part of the culture being masculine and feminine. Uh, you do you, you guys know about the Mennonites, Church of the Brethren? You remember see the women that have the little round doilies on their heads? You remember you ever see that? that was that was a that was a that's a that's just something that those churches, and you still see that some it's a it's a sign of submission and humility where the women still do that and so, so a lot of that what's going on there in 1 Corinthians 11 is steeped in that there's a lot of submission to their role also absolutely sign of that so cultural head coverings hair coverings what, what I would say is that what would you say is applicable for us for our culture you think any of this applies to our culture do you think that I mean and I have great respect but like a Pentecostal denomination four square assemblies of God you still women don't cut their hair right they still wear it long and they'll wrap it up into buns beehives and those kinds of right that's, that's, they still interp- take a more literal interpretation of that. I don't think we do, <laughs> right? Um, the, I, I think what would be applicable for us is to be culturally sensitive to what is masculine and femi- feminine. Feminine. St- I still think that's important. Um, God created ma- uh, males and females, masculine and feminine, and whatever that is, and that can vary from culture to culture, but I, I still think that um, when we go out into New Albany, you should still be able to tell that a man is a man and you should still be able to tell that a woman is a woman and and you and I as believers should still dress modestly. You can see some on mm-hmm. television and you don't know really yeah. what, what it is. You know, yeah. Yeah, i i you guys have been like me I've gone out before maybe now be somewhere and you see some young person I, honestly I don't know if it's a male or a female sure. I, I don't know and and you know, then there was this whole cultural it's a big cultural thing with young women I remember when the when girls started really shaving off their hair real short and they wore black gothic stuff and they wore black army boots and military fatigues and you know that was a you remember that when that all how, started back some years ago right I don't, I don't think that's appropriate for a Christian and somebody's going to listen to them and think oh, I said very judgmental they can think what they want. Christians should be dressed modestly and the, and people should know that I'm a man publicly and by the way, let me just let me just add this to this there there are there are people, men and women in our culture, who are struggling with identity issues, sexual identity issues. Okay? Now, that might be hard for some of us to understand how can a, a young man not be sure he's a man, a male, and wh- how, can it, how is it possible that a young girl is not sure that she's a girl? And while we may not understand it, that is a very real issue for a lot of young people, and, and, it, and it's not funny. and it it doesn't need to be made fun of. Okay? So if we make fun of people like that and they come to our church and and hear us making fun of them, they're not going to come back. And so while we may not understand how can somebody get that confused sincerely in their minds or they don't know if they're a man or a woman, most of us can't even grasp how somebody get that confused, but they do. And most of them uh, really struggle in life and a lot of them g- deal with alcohol issues and drug issues and therapy issues because they're, 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 they're miserable. They're confused. They're tormented in their own minds, not even sure if they're a man or a woman. And so we need to, we need to be sensitive to that, okay? Yeah, what God yeah it can happen. The last part of 1 Corinthians 11 uh, gives some instructions on the Lord's Supper. We'll wind up here. Um, and so when you gather together, the church at Corinth, when they were coming together for the Lord's Supper, there was some abuse. Um, they actually know that some of the... They had a, the church adopted what they, what became known as love feasts where the church would gather together and have big fellowship meals. And they would bring food, and they would eat. Some churches still do that today. There was a Filipino church that that we were involved in, and they ate they ate a dinner every Sunday after church, and used to invite me over to come over and eat with them, which I did, but I wasn't too crazy about it because <laughs> I was eating some of this stuff that they were just so proud for me to eat, and I just I wasn't too crazy about it, but I would eat it, right? So, um, but. The church of course, had some kind of big love feast. They'd have a big meal. And, and this love feast turned into being becoming a very divisive thing where some of the people in the church um, didn't want certain people there. And they began to separate themselves. And, and then they wouldn't even take the Lord's Supper together. And so there was some real abuses. Some of them, they also getting drunk. They were getting drunk at these love feasts before they would take the Lord's Supper together. And so Paul has some pretty strong words there. And at the end of that, he said, so before anybody takes the bread or the cup, there should be some self-examination. You remember reading that verse? Let let a man, let a woman examine themselves before they come to the Lord's table. Well, what are some questions that you and I should ask for self-examination? By the way, it's not just enough, are you a Christian? So anybody who's a Christian should feel free to come to the Lord's table. Well known. That's not true. These people that Paul was writing to were Christians. So, why does he say, examine yourself? What is, what is he referring to? If it's, if it's all the grammar, just being a Christian, then he would just come. I think it's more to that. I think there are some basic things. Number one, do you know you're a Christian? So, this is kind of some thoughts before we take the Lord's Supper. Do I know I'm a Christian? Have I, been, have I been baptized? That's the first act of obedience. You know, I want, am I in a right relationship with God? Am I a Christian? Have I been baptized? That ought to be important. Um, have I, uh, is there any, any areas of willful disobedience in my life? It's time of listening. God, the Holy Spirit. Am I at odds with my brother or sister in Christ in church? I sit over this side of the sanctuary and they sit over that side of the sanctuary and we avoid each other because we don't, we had a tiff, we got into it years ago and we've never spoken since. Is it okay for them to come to the table? Examine themselves. Um, Disobedience, am I at odds with people That's, that that before we come to the table it's a time that we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us and it's a time that we reflect on the gospel and not only do we reflect think about the cross the cross has a vertical stock to it where we think about our relationship with God but then there's a horizontal stock to it where we think about relationships with others yeah. and so that all of that should occur during some self-examination. And we humble ourselves and, and we, we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit before we come to the table. Chapter 12, all about spiritual gifts. Verse 1, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. So uh, let me say this about spiritual gifts. Um, spiritual gifts are divine endowments or abilities that God gives to us to serve Him and to serve the body of Christ, gifts. And I've had people ask me questions about, what about natural talents, natural abilities? Are those the same as spiritual gifts? Well, I think they're not listed in the Bible, but let me think about it this way. If, if you were gifted when you were born to be very musical? That's a gift. It's a talent. It's ability that God gave you. And you want to use it for his glory. Uh, So why not? You might not see the spiritual gift of music listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians and Romans 12, but it's a gift. It's an ability And as a believer, I want to use all my my gifts, my abilities, and my talents, I want to use it for the Lord. Does that make sense? It's still something God gave you. (laughs) So why, let's use it for his glory, to to serve him, to advance the gospel. So, um, and then the other thing I would just point out about spiritual gifts is, gifts tells God, those were not given to us to exalt ourselves. Gifts within the body of Christ are always given to build up, to edify, to bless the other person. If somebody had to, let's go back to somebody, uh, uh, Don would, could I'm sure could talk at length about this uh, from years and years and years of leading music ministry. If somebody is a very gifted singer, very gifted voice, and their motive for singing is to put on a show, to exalt themselves, uh, I think I think the, they're disqualified. That's what was that was the problem at Corinth is everybody was trying to draw attention to themselves and it was chaotic and caused division. So hey, I like all kinds of music. I will tell you just a little personal. One of the reasons I got turned off years ago on southern gospel music. Not that I don't like the southern gospel music. I didn't like the southern gospel quartets. Because many of them come in the, come into your church, they put on a show, take their jackets off, start swinging their jackets around, walking up down the aisles, and they got all the gestures and mannerisms. It's a big show. And it makes me sick. And so I got turned. So it's not that I don't like the music. It's not that I don't like the lyrics. And I'm, not all quartets are that way, but many of them are. And I just think it's abhorrent. When people sing or serve in the body of Christ, it is always for for the glory of God, for him to increase, for them to decrease, and it's always to bless and build up and edify other people. It is never to draw attention to myself or to put on a show. Motive. Right? right? You you know you all you all with me? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? You know, when, when our kids were growing up in the church, Mindy played and the girls, every time Mindy would play the piano hall those little girls would go running into the family room where the piano was and they'd sit on the piano bench and they'd want to sing. And they are pretty good. <laughs> She'd sing. Our son would go in there. When she, Mindy was, when our kids were growing up in church, she wouldn't let them sing very much in church when they're little because she wanted to understand that even though it would, might be cute, Drilled him. It's not a show. It's not a performance. You're drawing attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to glorify him and honor him. And so, motives and spiritual gifts and service, right? What is my motive for wanting to serve the Lord? It's always for him. So, uh, it's all to build up by Christ. Then, the last thing here, chapter 13, is the love chapter. Uh, end of chapter 12. Paul says, but I show unto you a more excellent way. He's talking about spiritual gifts, but there's the most, what does he say is the more excellent way? Love. And If you look at verses 4 through 7 of chapter 13, he describes love, and it's, it's an action. Love is kind, love is patient, love is forgiving, keeps no record of wrong, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love is action. We think sometimes love is an emotion, a feeling. And uh, there's an emotional feeling part to it. So I love Mindy. We've been married, I forget how many, 38 years, a long time. And, uh, And it's been good. And I love her, and she does me, but that relationship, a lot of it is based on how we treat each other. I have I she and I willfully make decisions about how we're going to treat each other that's love now is there an emotional aspect to it yeah i have feelings for her still like to hold her hand you know still like to be with her and she does me there's and there's feelings but but our love is not based on feelings tingles you know it's it's and and so Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, that this is how the world will know you my disciples. Do you remember what he said? This is the evidence. By what? Your love for one another. Don mentioned that before we got started. The the, the distinguishing characteristic of a church and us being followers of Christ is our love for each other, which means how we treat each other. How do you treat people? And you can, you can know this book inside and out, backwards and forwards, be able to quote chapter and verses and write it and be a scholar, Bible scholar. But if you don't love people, you really haven't learned much. And that's what he said in 1 Corinthians 13, right? The very beginning. If, if I make a lot of noise, and don't love people, I'm like a, just a clanging cymbal. A big big drum, I make a lot of noise. But he said, if I don't have love, then what? It's worthless. It's worthless. Big zero. I preached a sermon uh, from 1 Corinthians 13 years and years ago. As I started the sermon, while I started reading the text and, and preaching, I had a guy on a on the drums, and I just started beating the drums while I was preaching. Just beating the cymbals, drum, just making awful, You awful know, trying to make the point you know, the more excellent way is love loving God, loving people so not only is it the chief characteristic of being his disciples but it's part of the great command what's the most important commandment in all the Bible, Matthew 22 you shall love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being heart, soul, mind, and strength And with all that you are, you want to love the Lord and adore the Lord and you want to to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Well, whoever that you see around you who is in need that you can minister to, that's your neighbor. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Saw three guys, saw the guy in need on the side of the road. They passed him by. But the Samaritan saw did uh, you saw that the Samaritan there and and cared for him. He was in need, so he ministered to him. That's love. That's what love does. All right. God bless you. We're we're all finished.